This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about content creation. And this is a topic we got from one of our listeners. So in case any of you guys are wondering if we actually take your suggestions, here's your proof. So for in content creation, there's a mantra in the marketing and branding world that content is king. And this couldn't be more true. Content is a vast category and it can include everything from digital content like social blogs, video, and publications to written content like books, white papers, pamphlets and brochures, and articles to TV and OTT like shows, advertisements, documentaries, billboards, and yes, podcasts. The list is endless because digital has created a proliferation of content platforms to the point now that we are surrounded by it. And the reason it is king, it is the ultimate differentiator for a business and a brand. Not only does it drive awareness by increasing touch points with your consumers, content that is consistently branded across platforms can disproportionately build credibility, reputation, and trust. Yeah, and these are essential to build the emotional and mental connections to your customer, which ends up ultimately compelling them to choose you over and over again. But we see way too many people being cavalier with their content. And some of the common things we see are just doing what everyone else is doing in terms of content creation and promotion, or copying and pasting to different channels without giving any thought to what actually works and is relevant on that channel, to not strategically thought through with brand and your consumer in mind. Yeah, and we spoke a lot about this last one as it pertains to social in episode seven, the four elements of every successful social strategy. It's really worth a listen if you want to deep dive into that channel. But for this episode, We're going to talk about content as a whole and share four attributes of content that drives ROI. All right. So the first attribute of content that drives ROI is it delivers value. And this could take several forms, but content is always created to engage and close your target consumer. The most common ways to deliver value are your content educates or informs, which is more functional in nature, but it's always based on a novel insight, solution, need, or opportunity that would be of interest to your target consumer. Notice I said novel. This is where you have to work hard to figure out what your differentiating point is. It's not good enough just to say what you do here. The other way that you can create value is entertains. The content makes you laugh, cry, think, scream. It invokes some sort of emotion that has a meaningful impact on your target consumer. A third way is that it can inspire. So this content connects with your consumer in a more intimate way. This creates a sense of understanding, calling, community, or celebration. The fourth way is promotes. And this is probably the most tactical and overused format because it provides value through some sort of discount. So either coupon, sale, or BOGO, some sort of offering like a webinar, podcast, some sort of analysis, treatment, like a spa treatment or a product, or some level of achievement like award, recognition, some sort of moment in time. This last one's actually very popular on LinkedIn, and this is where you're going to see a lot of people use Promote. Now, what happens, though, is that these can tend to feel very salesy. And if you overuse them, it could quickly take over the tone of your brand. And then your business starts feeling like one big ad. And the problem with that is that it can lose its humanity. So sometimes it's better to add value than to actually discount. And we're going to talk about that a little later. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that, you know, Anne mentioned the humanity here. What ends up happening is if you're not doing it the right way, you're losing the lens of the brand, which automatically disables the ability to be authentic in what you're trying to do. And so regardless of which you know, form you choose or way you decide as an in or using all of them, quite frankly, it's really important that you think about, is this relevant to your brand and does it make sense coming from you? And I think then that helps Mm -hmm. you get to that value point because the consumer 
automatically attaches value to it if it's tied to something they expect from your brand. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Really good point. All right. So the second attribute of content that drives ROI is it compels action. I think I set myself up nicely for this. I think so so too. (laughs) So when you deliver that value that's authentic to your brand, your consumer feels compelled to do something. Now, let me just preface this by saying you have to actually ask them to do something. You may get passive likes or, you know, comments and, and that kind of thing. But the way to really get people to engage with your content is to ask them to do something. Um, we call this a call to action. And Anne always talks about, which I never thought of it this way before, but she always says there's a funny thing that happens to the brain when you make a request. It's like you have an obligation to do something about it. I mean, we mm-hmm, talk all mm-hmm. the time about how we have a really hard time not responding to emails, <laughs> even if th- it's not applicable or, you know, if someone's asking us to do something, the knee jerk is to be like, okay, yes, I'll do something as a result of that. But it does work really well with content. And in addition to asking them, you have to kind of tell them what you want them to do. So it might be share, um, contact you, sign up for something, subscribe to something, rate and review something, which just to plug for our podcast, please, please, please do that for us, um, <laughs> to buy something, to engage in some particular way. Um, we like to say that it's better to be really clear, concise, and only ask for one thing in a given moment because otherwise it gets convoluted and confusing. So you just heard me ask you to rate and review. I guess that sort of sounds like two things, but essentially in the world of podcast, it can be the same. And then also it's good to offer incentive for taking immediate action. So if you're putting content out there and you're asking people to do something, you can offer time-bound additional value in exchange for something that you want them to do, some action you want them to take. So Let's say you share your fo- your favorite Christmas memory. You can receive a free photo book package, for example. Contact us in the month of February for a re- free website consult. Little hint here. This is the forthright people's incentive just for our podcast listeners. So contact us through the website. Say that you heard the offer there, and we will set something up with you. See what we just did there? Real live offer right in the moment. Um, And then again, I would just reiterate the point that I made previously with delivering value. If you're going to offer an incentive, make sure it makes sense for your brand. So obviously we do website work, right? I mean, we have a podcast episode, the very first one we did about monumental website mistakes. So that is well within our wheelhouse. It's something you probably would expect to hear from us. But for example, I mean, don't offer free socks if you're a makeup company, right? Offer a free lip gloss or some new shade of eyeshadow that's in for the season or whatever. But if you're a slipper company, you might offer free socks. And then that makes total sense to go along with your brand and what you sell or what you offer or whatever services you produce. Yeah, I think it's important to mention here that providing an incentive or or asking for something doesn't um, give you permission to have bad content. So you have to hook people with the content first, and then you get to make an ask of them. And then they're going to be more inclined to follow through on that ask if it delivers that value that we were saying before. But a lot of people miss that part, and they just like splash in that. And that's why people get very reliant on promotion or even just like simple education pieces that, you know, hey, it's good enough that I just tell you what it does you're going to be so overwhelmed by what it does that naturally you're going to you know go buy it or go look and that's not just that's not always the case sometimes people just need a little bit of a nudge in order to push them down the path and get them to complete whatever action you want and also the action doesn't have to be the same on every piece of content so you may have content for example, in one place like a billboard that is a little bit more like just moment in time as people are passing by, you just wanted to stick in this in their head and it's just basically call because, you know, people don't have much more time to process a billboard than call this number kind of thing. Um, or maybe it's just your website and they think about looking up your website later or the name of your company, right? So your call to actions could be different for different pieces of content, but it does not allow you to have poor content. It's not going to make up for poor content. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's the big premise of this entire episode, right? Like we're trying to give you tips for creating content that'll deliver ROI, but 
at its very, you know, foundation, if it doesn't connect with you at the brand level and feel like it's compelling and expected from you, then it's really pointless. And I think to the mm-hmm. point of incentives, um, those should feel like both they work for the channel. So like a billboard, like Ian just talked about, you only have seconds, literally, versus if you do long form content, that's kind of a different thing. So I think depending on the channel, but then also the message that's relevant to your brand and making sure those work really closely together helps you put something out there that works. Yep. Agreed. All right. The third attribute of content that drives ROI is it is designed for the platform. So as mentioned earlier, many brands will design for one platform and then they can cut and paste into others. And it's good to make sure that certain brand elements transfer through so people know that it's you. But be mindful that what works on one platform may not work on others. All right. So this is especially the case in social. And we've talked about this a lot, but it's worth repeating here that the, the different channels can play different roles. Now, many will design for one channel and then just repost to others. And that's okay if that's your strategy. We would argue whether or not that's actually doing anything. But, you know, if, if you're designing for one and then you're reposting on the others and it's just there to have a presence, it's probably not costing you a ton of time and energy to do that. So it's probably not necessarily hurting anything, but it's definitely not helping anything. So definitely consider that. But if you want to maximize each channel and what it's designed for, here's a little snippet of what each channel is actually uh, designed to do for you. So LinkedIn is business-oriented. Here's where you share what quote-unquote is happening. And this is more education, information, and promotion, like we told you. It's a lot of actually promotion tied with you know, disguised as education and information. Actually, it's the other way around. It's more education <laughs> information disguised as promotion when people are like, hey, um, let's congratulate, you know, so-and-so for their latest promotion at this company that does this, right? So very promotional based in the way that they're trying to showcase their newest and greatest talent. But they also are trying to let you know that something about their company at the same time and what their company does. So it's very um, much intertwined in in that matter from a LinkedIn standpoint. Well, and I would say, too, just a really timely example. And, and I think, you know, all the things you can say about LinkedIn, there is a good amount of policing among members. So whether it's mm-hmm. like, please stop reaching out to me. I'm not interested in this. Lately, the most recent one has been political statements being made on LinkedIn. And I've seen people, you know, we're not going to talk politics on this show for sure. Um, but I've seen people posting stuff about their points of view on politics. And immediately people are responding and saying, this is not the platform for that. I am going to unfollow you. Please take your point of view somewhere else. LinkedIn is a political free platform. And I've seen that three or four times just in the past day. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And despite what some people think, it's not a place to share what's going on with your family either. <laughs> no, um, A lot of people try to do that, and it, it doesn't resonate really well. The channel for that is more Facebook. Okay, so sharing and documenting all life's moments or expressing your POV. But as April had mentioned, sometimes even on Facebook um, – People just wish you wouldn't, right? (laughs) Um, But really, Facebook can cover up on all of those different uh, value-driving platforms. So it's really important that you choose where you want to focus. And because it could get a little misconstrued and it you need to want it to be very strategically aligned with what you want that channel to deliver and in which value element you want it to deliver in. And you can probably play across a couple, but if you try to play across all four, it's going to be really, really challenging for you. Um, Another one is Instagram. Instagram is all about the gram. I mean, we hear it all the time, and it's very, very accurately right. This is all about high-quality imagery, and it's more inspirational in nature, right? So even if you're documenting life's moments to some extent and you're sharing what is going on in your life, you're doing it in a very um, 
visual way that is meant to inspire or to communicate something that is inspirational, either by creating community or creating some sort of some level of insight. It's not just, hey, look at what Susie did today. It's look what Susie did today and and look at the impact that it's having on the world around Susie. So you have to really think about it through that lens and in order to be able to create the inspirational content that is expected on Instagram. Quick note here. Um, you can tell Anne and I spend a lot of time together because Susie is the name of every baby doll in our house right now for our two-year-olds. So <laughs> <laughs> as soon as she said that, I had to chuckle. I was like, oh, old Mia, all the Susies. All the Susies? <laughs> wow. That's got to be hard to we don't know Remember who's who. Remember who, who is who. Yeah, it's like Susie. Which, which Susie? For heaven's sakes. Uh, Twitter. Twitter is more stream of thought. It's actually inspirational to the extreme, sometimes to the point of incitement. <laughs> so and this is the one that we struggle with a lot with our clients because a lot of people want to use Twitter almost like their diary. Mm-hmm. And this is a big, fat no-no. Um, people forget that this is a brand channel. And then they start posting whatever is like top of mind without really like thinking about it. And then it starts to erode your brand. So I see examples of it every day. I just have the Twitter feed coming into my phone. It's the only one I really get notices on because I find it so hysterical. What people decide is like very important to like actually post at the moment. And then I like kind of um, shake my head. (laughs) Well, and I think also don't try too hard on this platform to be clever because I think that also falls flat where people think they're saying like the most important thing in the world to your point and then they try to word it a certain way and I'm like, I don't know what you're trying to say, but that does not make sense. Yeah, the character limit can sometimes be overly confining, but (laughs) just because you can doesn't mean you should do. Uh (laughs) Um, Pinterest is another popular one. Now, this one used to be more education information focused, um, and it's always like kind of skewed with that novel insight or that creative insight, if you will. But now it's crossing multiple different platforms. So again, this is another one where you really need to choose where to focus. And it's more one that you kind of curate content versus you're actually pushing content out. So think about it in, in that term. And then YouTube, YouTube still exists to entertain. So even if your content is designed to be more you know, in the education information vein or more inspirational or more promotional, it still needs to entertain in that way. So that is really, really important to remember because um, a lot of people will then just put their, you know, their videos and, and all of that as a repository on YouTube, which is fine because that helps with search actually, but it's not actually doing anything with the channel. So I just want to make sure that everybody is understands the distinction of actually using YouTube as a, as a channel to maximize uh, your, uh, your content and your exposure versus just having it serve as a repository for content. Yeah. And I think too, with YouTube, um, sometimes people post all of their things on that one as well and don't realize what's actually like public versus not and who can see things. And, you know, suddenly you're trying to share with the grandparents a couple of videos and then it's out there. So I think um, privacy settings, both from just a pure embarrassment (laughs) perspective, but also to Anne's point and our point here of managing your brand, just make sure that you use those filters appropriately. Yes, that is a very good point. Because it happens. It happens a lot. And I think the other thing you need to be really um, careful about um, on YouTube is um, once your content becomes popular enough is the pre-rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the pre-rolls, you have very little um, control over, mm-hmm. but it could be very out of sync with whatever your brand equity is. And we had a lot of problems with that. Um and our very family-friendly brands at P&G that had very controversial pre-roll content because mm-hmm. um, YouTube and all the the folks behind it are the one who define what that content is. All right. So then the fourth attribute of content that drives ROI is it triggers your brand. And I've also set myself up nicely for this one because mm-hmm. I've made comments about it throughout. Um, but this is really, really the point of making sure that your brand 
elements are integrated. So whatever content you're putting out there is ownable and can be attributed to you. We talk all the time about brand toolkit. And that is why this is so, so important to your brand. That means both the visuals, so colors, logos, textures, patterns, photography choices, all of those types of things, as well as how you speak, how you sound, you know, your tone of voice, your brand character, all of those types of things. Um, And this is also especially important if you're working with other brands or you're in a crowded category or, you know, fill in the blank. There's this is the place everyone wants to be these days. You have to make sure that it is authentic so that people can remember it, but then also remember that it came from your brand. So before I was just talking about the fact that, you know, if the consumer sees content from you and it feels right, it's literally a feeling then they put that into the like, yeah, that's what I expect to see from them. Versus if you do something that is not that, it's not authentic and they might remember you, but it won't be for the wrong or for the right reasons rather. Yeah. And this is why a lot of people choose to do campaigns Uh as well, Uh because campaigns is a way to unite brand messaging across multiple channels. The thing you have to remember about campaigns is that it too takes on almost its own brand identity, mm-hmm. right? So it's incorporating your brand identity with some respect, but it also generally has some other message or some other look, tone, feel, something else that is creating another presence that is still authentically linked and intrinsically linked to your brand, but it's playing in a slightly different space. And it's generally in the, with the purpose to deliver some sort of business goal at that time and place, whether it's more awareness or it's relevancy or it's credibility. So you're, you've, a lot of you probably just saw this when um, with Super Bowl hit and everybody kind of creating their Super Bowl campaigns in order to unite a big moment in time with something that's relevant to the brand. This, as we talked about before, is an opportunity for people to kind of play a little bit outside their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, with a slightly different equity or an extended equity, but it still is critically important and intrinsically ties back to your brand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and I think the other thing is Anne was talking um, that I was thinking about is, again, you know, the previous comment was about each individual platform. It's also important from a brand perspective to use the right proportion, let's say, of your brand across those channels. So like in Instagram, you know, if you're going to do a heavily branded post, we've talked about like, that's really the place for inspiration and beautiful photography. It's okay to incorporate something that looks a bit artistic, like your color or, you know, the shirt of the person in the picture happens to be wearing your brand color, that sort of thing. But you don't want to overly design those from a brand perspective and throw your whole toolkit logo, all of those things Mm -hmm. in there. Um, Obviously, it's what? Not a Google ad. Yeah, exactly. They're not full advertisements and and then also with the the promotion piece I mean I would I would say the same thing is you know Ann talked about it needing to be something that matches with your brand but then also you don't want it to feel like an ad and I think sometimes a lot of those start to feel that way and it just causes people to automatically opt out I mean similar to the comment made about LinkedIn not being a place for politics I mean I think the platforms have you know, the consumers have kind of dictated, honestly, some of the rules about what they're willing to put up with. And you have to be really aware and conscious of that so that you don't get your content kind of thrown away or people stop following you or whatever the case might be. Yep. I think that's a really good point. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right. So those are the four attributes of content that drives ROI. We're going to move on to our next segment, which is our In the Trenches segment, where we give real world examples. And this is going to be specific to industries, but you're going to see how these transcend into other industries as well. So um, 
we will point out those nuances as we get into this, and we will going to dive deep into some of these topics. All right. So our first in the trenches question, which one of the formats educates, entertains, inspires, promotes, creates the most engagement and word of mouth and generates the most leads? That's a small ask, right? Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> but you know what? It is a question that we get a lot. Um, and, you know, as we've kind of already like mentioned, a lot of businesses and brands really rely on educates and promotes. And the reason why is because it's the easiest to wrap your mind around. It's it's really easy to do what we call push content. It's what advertising is based off of, right? And it's the reason why it's easy is because it's really dictating what you do. It's like the problem solution benefits. But the thing is, it comes off as very adsy and, and salesy, which there is a place for that. Like I just said, TV advertisement, that's what that's all about. And that's fine if it sits on there. Now, when you try to lift that and put it in some other place, it starts feeling, as April has mentioned many times, very inauthentic. So the challenge that we always have for businesses is like, okay, fine, you need to have your educates and you need to have your promotes. That That is totally fine. You, everybody needs to have those. But how do you actually tie in entertains and inspires? Because if you don't, your brand can really like just kind of be flat. And then when you're flat, you end up playing that commoditized battle that we always talk about. And that becomes a price and, you know, in those those very tactical um success criteria of of time. And, and, and so you don't want to play that. You want to play the bigger brand role because that is where you're going to get the most value, right? So lest we not forget, 90% of decisions are based on emotion. Again, why you want to inter- intertwine the entertains and inspires pieces. Because if you ignore the emotion, you're really ignoring the biggest opportunity people to choose your brand. So you need to generally have a strategy, a content strategy that really addresses all four of these um, and through which channel you're going to actually execute these. And then you tune some up and you tune some down depending on what your objectives are, especially as you kind of consider that within your marketing strategy, because it's ultimately your marketing strategy that is the execution arm of what your content is. And don't get overwhelmed. I mean, you don't have to activate every single channel with a piece of content. You need to go back to your consumer and really think about what content is going to resonate the most and through which channel at which time. That's really the trifecta of success. Well, and I think, you know, going back to that first point about people relying on education and promotion, you heard Ann talk about the ad space. And I think because that aspect of branding is far more ingrained in businesses mm-hmm. and companies and cultures from an experience perspective, you know, from, a you know, TV ads feel safe and comfortable because we know how to do those. And so I think, unfortunately, some of that trickles down into social in that inappropriate way that we're talking about. And then I think on the other side, there is a vulnerability that comes with some of with the other ones, right? So entertaining and inspiring, you are putting yourself, your brand, you know, out there. And what if you get rejected, right? What if people don't laugh? Or what if people say mm-hmm. that's saying stupid, you know, whatever that ends up looking like from a comment perspective, it just becomes a little more risky, shall we say, um, because that vulnerability comes into those. But like Anne said, if you don't do it all, you're just completely missing the boat on the reason that the channels are effective when they're used appropriately. And I think people also have trouble assessing that for the entertains and inspires pieces for their brand because it's so subjective uh-huh. in nature, mm-hmm. right? What you think is funny I might not think it's funny mm-hmm. or vice versa. And then it becomes, well, are other people going to think it's funny? If we're not all laughing, is it the right thing to to do for the brand? And that's why it's so important to go back to your brand characteristics and really identify what are the tone of voice principles that you want to have and assess it against those sorts of things. And then realize it's okay if not everybody you know agrees on whether or not it's funny or inspirational. As long as your consumer and a majority of your consumer finds it so. And 
not everybody's going to like everything. And that's just the way it goes. And that's why you play against multiple channels. But it's really addressing people's questions and their needs for uh, in order to make that choice on multiple different levels. And that's what you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I remember just becoming furious when Old Spice rebranded and it was like this super out there, like half man, half horse and all these random weird things. And I was like, what is happening? And I remember all the guys in the office, you know, that were working on some of that stuff, thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I was just getting so mad. And then all of a sudden I was like, uh, duh, I am not the target. First of all, I'm female. It's a male brand. Also, like, I don't appreciate that sense of humor, period, at all. And so it was like, uh, hello, April, you do this for a living. You're not supposed to like that. Just opt out. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that's why you have Isaiah Mustafa, because, you know, he brought a little bit of element of sexiness and uh -huh. women then alike. Because <laughs> actually, interesting enough, because I worked that, I worked the transition of Old Spice um, in, from a brand equity standpoint. And because women are still predominantly the buyers. The buyer, yep. Um, you have to add in those elements, but a lot of the content is to intrigue men to tell their women to buy it for yeah. them. But yeah. I still thought Terry Crews with the like one man musician where it's like pecs like would flex and they would like push the drums and everything. Like, I thought that was hysterical. And I wasn't like admittedly, I'm not obviously the consumer either. And I was just like I look at the, some of the content and be like, Are we serious right now? Uh-huh. But it worked well and Wyden and Kennedy knew their stuff. So uh props to them. All right, so our second in the trenches question. <laughs> April loves this word. All right, a lot of people talk about content going viral. What does this mean and how do I get my content to do that? Oh, man. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is one that, that really still just sticks with me. And I can remember several instances with several clients when this term started being thrown around and how many briefs just said, we want to create content that will go viral. I mean, talk about losing my mind. I was like, <laughs> I do not understand what these people do not understand about the fact that you can't just make content go viral. I mean, oh yeah, it became like a running joke in the office because then it, what started happening is Anytime we would get a brief or any commentary, you know, associated with that, it would be like slid across my desk just to see what I would do because I lost my mind every single time. Um, but the point here is there is no formula for going viral. I mean, to the point we were making about not knowing what people will like or not like or what will resonate and what will not resonate. I mean, when things go viral, it tends to be a happy accident. And it usually isn't for the reason that you think it's going to go viral in the mm -hmm. first place. Because that's the other side of things is trying to run at that brief is like running at a wall repeatedly, right? Because you're having a conversation that no one actually has any insight into to be able to create something. So then you're going back to the client and you're debating whether you think it will go viral based on no principles at all. Mm -mm. I mean, it just becomes the chasing the tail situation over and over and over again. And yeah, I literally would lose my mind when a client would say that. And the other thing is, you know, the clients that would say it may be some of the craziest categories that, that would never create viral content, right? Like insurance or medicine or, you know, the ones where you're like, what are you going to create a viral video about that one is going to go past compliance and two, that's going to be interesting enough for people to love it that much. I mean, anyway, that's my my point of view on going viral. So I would just say no formula. Awesome for you if it happens. Uh, but you just got it, it's a crapshoot. How about that? Yeah, I think it's just a point is just to make good content because you might as well be asking your agency to try to turn water into wine. Oh, yeah. Which, if anybody knows how to do that, me and April are, like, <laughs> totally all ears. But seriously, um, it's it's a very good point. And I will say I've never, ever put that in a brief because good I know how absurd it is. Um, and it, like you said, it's a happy accident, but it's generally not for the reasons you want. Or mm -hmm. it's something that actually isn't going to do anything for your brand or do something for your brand in a very short term. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to necessarily do anything for your brand long term. So, um for example, you know, the whole Tide Pods challenge, which I still say through gritted teeth, went viral, not for a great reason, and it caused a whole lot of brand trauma. So um, be careful what you ask for. You might get it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, 
just go for yourself and look through some of the ridiculous stuff. Like go to YouTube and look at the videos that have all these crazy, you know, millions and millions of likes and you're left scratching your head of like, how did that make it? In, into a viral place. Funny, it just funny makes no cat sense. videos. You know, funny that's, cat that's videos. All you need. That's, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. All right. Our third in the trenches question: How high quality does a content need to be? Do I need to hire a professional? And for this one, we would say it really determines by your brand equity. So, and 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 it really actually is determined by what your consumer is looking for from your brand equity. And so you really need to think about that as well as the channel for which it's going to reside. And that kind of determines how polished your content needs to be. Now, that may seem like a lot to consider, but I'm going to break it down for you. We always start by asking our clients, what would you need to believe in order for you to make the choice to buy you or uh, choose your service? And if you could put yourself in your consumer's shoes, you can really... Think about it from like the outside looking in, where it helps you can really think about then, okay, if I was my consumer, what would this need to look like? What would I need to say? Through whom would I need to say it through? All those things that really help you consider what the believability of your proposition is going to be. And this helps you to figure out like how polished your content really needs to be. And of course, like I said, which channel is going to reside on. So just to give you kind of a little bit of a telegraphic look into it, let me use an example from my Thai days. Um, as you guys know, I worked a lot on Thai laundry detergent. And with that, we created a lot of demo videos to prove performance. Now, for the same demo, we would have different places and different levels of finish based on where we're going to use it. Okay, so for TV ads... It was very important for this demo to be very highly polished because TV itself is a very highly polished channel. Especially with smart TVs and all the clarity Oh, yeah, because you can, you can see everything. Yes. You can see everything, right? Yep. In the pixelation, you can see everything and the gazillion different colors. We just bought a TV and now there's like a thousand different colors uh -huh. versus, like, yeah, whatever. Um, we fell for it. It's okay. <laughs> um, but when you contract influencers you usually let them do the demos within their own home context or whatever the appropriate context for your brand because it captures the content in a more authentic way. And, and that becomes another credibility or another proof point. And when they're putting it on their own channels, you want it to feel like it's coming from them, all right? So that is a little bit more on the other end of polish, although some influencers will have more polished content than others. Now, there's also an in-between where if we're putting it on our own social channels, we want it to be somewhat refined because it needs to show up as legitimate because it's coming from the brand. But it doesn't necessarily need a high-level polish because it's on our social channels. So sometimes we would just hire a freelance photographer or a videographer to capture the content in our fabric care labs with our scientist. So it's, it just really all depends on where you're going to use it, what your consumer expects from you with regards to that and what's going to create the most believability on that channel for them. Yeah. And I, and I think too, um, this was another one where I feel like clients would get caught up in the agency with the agency, you know, where there's a lot of gray area around this topic and, and making the right choices. So we would have everything from Clients thinking they needed the highest quality images that could ever be produced for social, but then they wouldn't want to pay the price tag, nor should they have been paying the mm -hmm. price tag, because you don't need that for that particular space, right? On the other hand, we would do video that was only meant to be on social, but then all of a sudden it would perform well and the client would be like, well, let's just throw it on the TV. And then there would be anger associated mm -hmm. with like, well, you didn't, what do you mean you didn't film it that way? It's like, well, we said it was going to be only on digital and only, you know, small screens and, and all of those types of things. And so I think this becomes a tricky conversation, but I would just say, Align on the goals and uses of the content before you actually produce it. So then you ha you can get the right answers about how high quality should it really end up being. And I think you make a good point, too. If you're sitting on the bench where you're going to be evaluating the content, you really need to consider 
the way that the content needs to show up in order for it to be compelling and mm-hmm. and, and, and be authentic. Um, this is especially true when we worked with influencers. Like I mentioned, influencers can have a very high level of polish. They can have a much lower level of polish. I have seen content do well on both ends. Mm-hmm. But where I mm-hmm. ha- have content seen fail is when somebody, especially in the brand says, okay, this lower polished content from this influencer, I want it to be higher polished or I want it to be more stylized Uh or I want to be more refined. And then it doesn't feel very authentic to them. And then they lose credibility with the followers or the fans of that influencer. So as an evaluator of content, the point April made is, is a really good one. Make sure that you are really thinking about what channel it's going to be on, who it's coming from, and then what style and what level of polish does it need to have in order to work well. And then if it does do well on the channel, don't automatically assume that it's going to do well on TV. Mm-hmm. We've done that. We've made that mm-hmm. mistake before, too. It's like, oh, this is really working on social. Let's put it on TV. And then it doesn't do well on mm-hmm. TV. Well, because you design content differently for TV than you do for social. Mm-hmm. Like I said, if you're trying to make one piece of content stretch across multiple channels, your content is not going to uh, going to be compelling on any of those channels. It's the old adage, you try to be something for everybody, you end up being nothing to anybody. Mm-hmm. So um, you need to make sure that you're very kind of conscientious about that. Now, if you find something that works really well on a channel, you may restylize it for a different channel, but don't automatically assume it's going to work there. Yeah, and, and I think, too, the, the planning piece, right, which you're hearing us talk about here, is be honest about what you're going to use it for, but also think about what is encompassed in the campaign for which the content's going to be used so that you cover off on all the pieces and you don't end up in one of those oh shit moments where it's like, let's put it on TV now. It's like, well, we didn't even think about that as an option versus having the conversation of like, are you sure it's not going to be used for this or, you know, that this channel is not going to enter all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And I think also it depends on your eye and your skill with design tools and a camera too, because a lot of people try to be their own at-home photographer and their own at-home videographer, Mm -hmm. which could work. But I know, like, April, you've had a ton of experience with this one, too. So, yeah, I mean, I think it it just (laughs) – if you have an eye for design or you've received training for design, you just see it differently. And Mm -hmm. I think because we've put all of these tools in people's hands now – um, like, I feel like Canva has become the bane of my existence because I get so many files associated with that. And I'm like, this is not how they need to be built, right? So, I mean, I think it's a great thing that we're allowing people to be more creative and and to put the technology in their hands. All of those things are great things. But I think what ends up happening is because they have the tools, people believe they can do it. And design is a craft. It is not mm-hmm. just hey, teach me how to use Photoshop, and then suddenly I become a designer. It's just not the way that it works. And so I think to the point of knowing the audience and who's going to be looking at it, as well as what your brand or company or business or whatever wants to represent, you've got to think about that piece because all the stuff we're talking about is a creative exercise, whether it's just written content or it's visualized content. I mean, you have copywriters too, right? Mm -hmm. This people's Mm -hmm. professions. And so I think it's just important to, one, not assume that you can do it just because you can. Maybe sometimes you really shouldn't. Um, But also to recognize design for what it is and the power that it can have and respect it as such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with that. All right, our fourth in the trenches question, how do I know what platforms to choose from my brand and then what content to provide there? All right, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but based on your consumer audience and where they are. Um, We've talked before many times across many of these topics about the fact that businesses tend to speak sometimes or fall into the trap of speaking from inside out. You need to speak outside in. And Mm -hmm. so you need to not only know what your consumers and customers expect of you as a brand and a business, but also where they are very specific to the platforms and what and where your brand can perform authentically. And so it's it's really about making all of that work together so that it doesn't feel like an outlier or something where consumers are left scratching their heads thinking, what the heck was that supposed to be? Um, 
And then also, when are they most receptive to what type of content? So, we, you know, there's always a the conversation out there about people and their multiple screens, right? So they're watching TV, they're scrolling through Facebook, you know, what kind level of attention are you getting there? You know, they're driving down the highway, they see a billboard. I mean, I know there's a lawyer here in Cincinnati where you see his billboard all the time and he's always dressed up with boxing gloves or some crazy sports figure and it just shouts his phone number, right? Um, that is just just to attract your attention if you happen to need a lawyer at that point in time. Otherwise, you're just like, oh, there's another one of those billboards, right? And so it it really, it's very intentional and all of the channels must work together with the content being produced. And then another famous line from us is to test and learn. So mm-hmm. you can look and study your consumer. You can study your competition. You can see what other people do. You can learn from others' mistakes. But ultimately, some of what happens with content is it is unpredictable. The whole viral example, right? We don't know what is going to go viral. We don't know necessarily what's going to be effective and what's really going to hit home with consumers. So you don't necessarily have to come up with some big elaborate plan to try every platform and put content on every one. You know, we would never suggest that you do it all at once. So pick a couple learn from the best practices, create some content, put it where your customers are, and then wait and see. And then whatever works well, you can shift strategy, you can build on that strategy, you can, if if nothing really hits really well like you want, you can try a different platform. I mean, the beauty about content today is you're not necessarily spending $600,000 on a TV spot that's going to run all year or whatever. You're able to change up content all of the time. And if something doesn't work, it's only there for a couple of seconds. You know, it gets buried in the feed or the next topic comes up or, you know, people move on a lot more quickly than they used to. And so it can be freeing if you do it in the right way and with an informed strategy to the why you're doing it. Well, I think that's really interesting that you say that, especially about time, because one of the questions that we've been getting, um, and actually I just got this from one of my friends who does marketing for um, a local school, is should people be wearing masks in their content and Mm. should they be showing that they're being social distanced appropriately within the content? and I think this one where is where time is a really important factor because short term, you need to think about the fact of what how's your brand going to be perceived in 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 that context with that content. So, for example, she was specifically looking at a billboard and we've been talking about billboards a lot. But, you know, you could translate billboard into um, collateral, anything that you're actually showcasing your brand onto. Short term, you need to think about whether or not your brand's integrity is going to be at stake if you're going to look tone deaf as a result of not portraying that. So for her, for kids, you know, a a picture of kids in a classroom on a billboard, yes, absolutely, they should be shown socially distanced and yes, they should be shown wearing masks. Now, long term, if she's trying to create collateral that is going to be like, say, a pamphlet for the school – I advise her, you know, you really need to consider how long you want that content to live. So, for example, if this just is a pamphlet for this year, then yes, maybe mm-hmm. you do want to have and, and showcase that. If this is a pamphlet that you're hoping is going to um, be something you use for the next several years, hopefully in the next several years, having a mask on is going to look toned up, mm-hmm. <laughs> just God willing. So you have to really consider the investment versus the time frame for which you're going to use that content to really think about whether or not it makes sense. And some platforms are a little bit more flexible than others. So, for example, for TV or for social, if the content is more posed, if it looks like it's a photo shoot, if it's like in that way that looks, dare I say, a little bit more like set or contrived, people are are a little bit more flexible. They suspend belief a little bit, knowing that this isn't necessarily a real world example. This is actually a posed example that's meant to convey something at in 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 that imagery or that that context. But if you're actually like showcasing a moment in time of people actually doing something that feels like it's right now, then yes, you may want to consider having them have a mask or having them be social distance. But you don't need to have the token everybody in a mask picture if Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I just saw this in a print ad for a local realtor where they had all these beautiful photography and then they had the one token picture of them all in masks. I'm like, 
Why? I mean, what, what's the point of that? That doesn't even make any sense. You, you have another picture of you guys standing there without one. So mm-hmm. what am I supposed to like pick up from that? So I think it's um, a time-relevant piece. It's also what is going to represent your brand and your brand's integrity in that moment. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I would also say don't overthink it because that's where it starts to feel inauthentic and contrived. I mean, I think speaking of TV and I'm not necessarily a This Is Us watcher anymore, um, but that's one that's been called out for being really extreme. And I think I'd say a couple things there. Number one, the one place people can escape masks and COVID is in the comfort of their homes, watching TV the way it used to be. And I'm, you know, doing quotes with my, with my fingers, air quotes. But so Number one, there can be an argument made that this isn't real life, so you don't necessarily need to reflect it as such, and maybe that can be an escape for people. The other thing I would say, and I think the press that came with that show was it was just like so overemphasized and overdone, and it just it overshadowed lots of overs there all of the storyline content, everything that was happening, and. That was just really unnecessary and not how people want to think about it. And so I I think, you know, that's one example. But I I do think Anne's points are well made of like when it makes sense, but also like don't be too sensitive about it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think that's right because I think people – I don't know (sighs) – I just don't believe people are going to overly judge you one way or the other unless Mm -hmm. it's something that's very situationally – relevant Mm -hmm. to something that they are evaluating you based on, like Mm -hmm. kids in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, if you're taking video of kids in a classroom, right, they need to be wearing masks. They need to be wearing masks. They need to be far away from each other. That's, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, think about that from the context of your business and would people judge you or have some sort of negative impression of you as a result based on what you're trying to do? Or is it perceived as more posed or more... um, set, mm-hmm. you know, in order to bring up a different point that you're trying to make. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Our last in the trenches question. When I do a promotion, is it better to add value or do a discount? All right. I told you we're going to come back to this one because I think this is a really, really important point. If you're considering content or if you're considering anything with re- where you're trying to uh, promote and advertise your business. So promotions can be a really, really good way to drive short-term trial. But as we talked about, if they are done too frequently, it sets a precedent and becomes a business model. Yeah, you start being known as a discount brand. Exactly right. So you really need to consider your margins, your business model, your business goals, because this is ultimately going to help you define how you address promotions within your business. So for example, Yankee Candle and Bath & Body Works these brands work on a discount and they can because they're volume based and that's how their business model operates. But they have trained a consumer that you should never pay full price for anything. So if you walk into that store and there would be no promotion to be like, uh, there's no way I'm paying $28 for a candle. Yeah. The perception is that it's overpriced because if they can always sell stuff at at a discount, then their margins are astronomical. And yeah, $28 becomes insane for a candle. At least a Yankee candle. I know there's lots of people who like premium candles that are a whole lot more than that. But in the Yankee candle context, same with Bath and Body Works, right? Now, I'm also a Massage Envy member, and I know I get a free enhancement on my birthday. That's a really interesting way to provide value to incent to try something that, you know, at that point in time feels like a treat. It feels like something that I might want to schedule on my birthday so that I can get that enhancement. And then what that does is like, hey, maybe I like that enhancement. Maybe I want to continue to add that on as I go forward. But really, the $10 charge of the enhancement at that moment wasn't a huge uh, thing that the the business had to sacrifice because I was still paying my membership fee. They didn't discount the actual facial as a result. So that helps them to actually promote something in a way that drives value, but it doesn't diminish the core offering. It's the same thing with my nail salon, Deluxe Nails here in Cincinnati, which I happen to love. They offer free paraffin in the winter. Again, it's something that they can scale pretty easily without a huge upcharge to them. 
but they don't discount the nail services, right? So with that, it gives me a, uh, an opportunity and a, and a desire to actually book more frequently because the paraffin stuff is kind of nice. It makes your hands feel all soft. Again, I'm getting more value out of that. So it's really important to think about, like, is there an opportunity to provide these value adds to your base offerings so you don't have to compromise those base offerings, but you can incent people to try something new. So you have to think about where your your business plays there. Yeah, and I mean, one of the ones that I just came across today, um, uh, Panera is giving away free coffee and free tea. I think it's for six weeks or a month if you sign mm-hmm. up. And you can go in there and get a refill every two hours of whatever you're drinking. And at first I thought, what a stupid idea. They're basically just saying how much they make on their coffee and their tea by saying we're able to give it away for free. But then I started thinking about the repeat, right? So if I need to find somewhere to go work and the restaurants are open right now, I might you know, post up at a table knowing that every two hours I can refresh my coffee, but then all of a sudden I'm there for lunch and I'm hungry or, you know, I go through the drive through and I'm like, oh man, wouldn't it be nice to have a pastry to go with my afternoon coffee? And so I think, you know, we've talked in other episodes about how mm-hmm. tough it is for restaurants right now. I completely changed my mind and I'm always a skeptic. So of course I'm like, you know, dumb from the beginning and then I can kind of unravel it. But I was like, you know what? That's pretty smart because they're going to beat out others and their, you know, competition where people are paying three and four and ten dollars for their coffee and getting more people in the door more regularly, thinking of them, all of those types of things. So it feels like a pretty smart idea given what's going on right now. Yeah, especially with what coffee then leads to, like you said, the pastry yep. and, and other things are staying for lunch. So, yeah, that's a, a very clever way of adding value. At a point that you're not really giving up too much in the terms of profit of Mm -hmm. your business in order to generate a bigger opportunity to drive more sales and your core part of your business. Yes, exactly. And it's a promotion. So they'll be able to gauge, did we make more money on the food and, and other items or is this ineffective? And to our test and learn strategy, it's offered for a period of time. They can decide. But I'm sure somebody in there was like, what do we have to lose? We don't make that much you know, here. Could we make more? And I, I just think it's smart. And I think that's an important point to, this, to, to reiterate, too, is that the time-bound nature yeah. um, of promotions and incentives, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. And our third and final segment is a real world example of a brand who is doing this well or not well. And today, in the context of generating content that drives ROI, we're going to talk about the brand Athleta. And Athleta is doing a pretty good job, but there's room for improvement. And for those of you guys who may not be familiar with Athleta, although I'm pretty sure most of you guys are, is this part of the Gap franchise? Um, but it really specifically focuses on athletic wear. All right. So a lot of people would know Lululemon as well. And we're going to talk about Lululemon in a second. But, you know, that would be like a main competitor to this whole athleisure um, movement. And so Athleta and Lululemon, really big in this athleisure movement. And talk about a brand that probably is capitalizing quite well, given COVID and people wearing all of their athleisure to lounge around. I'm sure they're, those brands are are doing amazing. Yeah, I definitely think you're right on that. <laughs> Um, so to begin with, they do a really good job of triggering brand. And this is where we were talking about campaigns. Right now, all their content is united under a campaign called The Power of She. And this is a common thread that pulls through all of their content. And they do a really good job of, of uh, really showcasing different types of content. And we're going to talk about this in a second. That really showcases the different dimensions of Power of She. And it becomes really, really a ubiquitously tied to the brand in the way that they do this. So first of all, across all their channels, they trigger their brand through this campaign, which evokes a certain emotion, a certain feeling that is more inspirationally focused. So if you look at their social, then their Facebook and their Instagram, which is where they primarily are putting a lot of this content, especially Instagram, I think that's probably the primary one that they're actually designing for. It is definitely feeling more inspirationally, more promotionally focused, but not promotion in the way that is discount-based. So we talked about the different types of promotion. Theirs is definitely a lot more 
promoting their new styles, uh, their new arrivals. Now they're really showing that they have this range of sizes, especially as they're promoting Power She from an extra, extra small, which I don't know who wears that size. I don't size. know. I mean, what is that size? I mean, size, I couldn't anyway? even squeeze my two-year-old into that. I know. I'm like, what? <laughs> but I'm sure it, it, it benefits some. Maybe it's like more like skewing to the kid's size, if uh. I had to like maybe make a guess. To, I think, 3XL. And they're really portraying the images of these women who really embody this power of she on all size ranges, which is a really, really cool thing. And that is something that's actually they're leading the the charge in. And it's been a really um, big criticism of these athleisure brands in the terms of really catering to women that are more curvy or that are bigger, but are still very athletically minded. So their content, as I said, being more inspirationally based in in being promotionally based, they don't actually use a really strong call to action. They're really using the organic nature of the content and the fact that they have new styles or new arrivals to really pique interest. Now they do have some like, shop icons. But honestly, they don't do as good of a job as Lululemon here, where Lululemon's like actually says tap to shop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very simple nuance, but it does like then trigger my brain is like, oh, I am going to tap to shop. Even though the icons in, in, in the call to actions are on the images at Athleta, it's just to ask to call to shop or the tap to, to shop feels like it compels me to actually want to tap in and even look. Well, and so. I think it's not always intuitive to people either. I, I agree. Like I think there's assumptions made that the most tech savvy person ever is using this. And and there are times where, you know, we do this for a living. A new idea or application comes out and I'm like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? Like it takes time to adjust. So I think you're right. It's a call to action, but then it's also like Hey, do this. It's, it's a little bit of education to say, yeah. hey, this is a, the latest feature because yeah. you used to not be able to do that. Yes. Right? So it does help to trigger that. And I think that's super smart. They also use um, the women that represent the power sheet in a very promotional way. Now, I say that because they tell their stories of inspiration in a way that helps promote the brand. Now, that might sound very contrived, if you will, but it's not because they do it so well. It can be if you don't do it well. So that's a big, huge watch out. But in this case, the, the stories that they tell and the uh, the faces that they bring actually do a very good job of that. So for example, they have Allison Felix. Allison Felix is a runner. She is a fierce runner. So the way that she they portray her and the power of she really brings that to life. It inspires me to want to be fierce like Allison Felix. And so there's a, a range of that. They have um, now the figure skating when they're trying to bring a little bit more um, awareness to the, the sport of figure skating, a very different way to portray the brand within this power of she. And then within that, they're, they're really trying to inspire more people to feel um, that this brand is something for them, even if you're not even a figure skater, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, Twitter is definitely not a priority for them. Um, their content isn't designed for Twitter. It is there, but it doesn't do well. So like we said before, it's fine if it's there. Their website um, actually brings in another element of education, which is um, through their community page, where they do start getting into a little bit more video-based exercise um, and, and exploratory things with regards to adventure. Adventure is a big theme for them. So that shows up on their website and a little bit splattered through through Facebook and Instagram, but pri primarily education is on their website. And then YouTube serves as a repository. And that's fine, like we said, because search is a really important thing. So those things are searchable there. And actually, since I spent a lot of time in the store, because it's one of my daughter's favorite, I can tell you that it also pulls through into their store. So the elements of the photography in the store, the way that the clothes are actually organized, the, the mannequins, like I said, are not just like your size, like six doing the, like the really like, you know, complicated yoga poses. It's a whole wide range. So that's really, really important to be able to then draw that whole story like through all of these different elements. Well, and I think it makes it a lot more um, approachable too, right? Because I think a lot of the things we mm -hmm. talk about with these types of brands, it's like, and you mentioned Lulu, not always feeling like, 
I belong in that store right. or I fit in that store or that I'm brave enough to go in and, and explore. I mean, it, it can really cause people to shy away. And I think being part of the Gap family of brands, they embrace that overall strategy at a, at a company level to bring a, approachable and comfortable to the masses, essentially. Um and so I think it makes perfect sense, even when you look at it from that level, that this brand sits within their portfolio of offerings. Yeah. And, and they do it, though, not in a generic way, but in a very pointed way towards their specific consumer that they're trying to achieve. So this is not just like oh, yeah. any woman. There's still a spirit there of oh, the women yeah. that they're trying to attract. But it's that woman who does feel like, you know... You know that I I can do this. Mm-hmm. I just need the you know the right clothing in order to be able to do this, and that I think is really really super important because I think Lulu to some extent feels very elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still very yoga based. It's um, it feels like that's the you know the, the limitations of of that brand, and you know there has been things in the past where there has been some negative publicity um, around. Uh, what the clothes are designed for, even though when we found out like the truth behind it, that was very interesting. And just a small aside is that um, the the whole scandal behind the see-through Lululemon leggings was barely based on the fact that women were buying him several sizes too small to try to wear him as Spanx. Mm-hmm. And that was causing the, the issues. Overstretching of the fibers. Overstretching of the fabric. So yep. sometimes when we hear these things, you kind of have to go back and, you know, hear underneath the story sometimes. So... So I think, you know, they also then, like we were saying, Athleta does a really good job of designing for their consumer. Mm-hmm. And there's a very specific consumer in mind for which they're designing all their content for. And makes it feel relevant. Makes it feel like this This is my brand. This is something that I, I feel comfortable in. This is something that feels like can I feel connected to. That's the emotional connection that we are talking about. And it's a feeling. And it's a you feeling. You hear Ann saying over and over, it's a feeling. It's a fire inside of me. It's the desire to get out there and go do it. It's not just, I want cute yoga pants or running pants right, or because whatever. because you could buy those anywhere. You could go to Kohl's and buy leggings, right? right? You know, so I think that's really, really important. And that we have anything against Kohl's. We're just trying to show the differentiation here. <laughs> Good save. Thank you. All right. Well, that is what we have for you with regards to content that drives ROI. So with that, we encourage you guys to go out there and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here, and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover, which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.